What is up, everyone? This is Raphael Garcia here with Juan Humes for episode 225 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I want to thank you for your time checking us out tonight or listening to us in the rear, wherever you may find us. Before I go into our whole spiel that we do every single week, this is our last episode for 2021. We'll be back early January on the 5th which is the two Wednesdays from now. So um, before we get get into the show, I just want to say be safe and, and do the best you can to stay COVID negative over the holidays. But Shawan Humes, man, why don't you let everybody know how you're doing, sir? Uh, not doing too bad. Surprisingly, just got home again. I was uh, training a couple of kids, so just got home, got some stuff together, and sat down to do the show. Uh, everybody who came and checked me out on Heavy Hands podcast, thank you very much. Um, new people who are coming over from Heavy Hands to check me out on me and Raphael's platform, MMA Ratings Podcast, welcome. Hopefully you enjoy your time here. And uh, to the co- the host of Heavy Hands Podcast, Connor Rebush and uh, Phil McKenzie, thank you very much for having me on. I've known both the guys for a little bit and just was a fan of their show and a fan of their platform. And for them to allow me to come on and talk about the upset um, between Pena and Nunez, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to kind of be on a little bit of a bigger platform and get exposed to some of the fans um, and uh, viewers of your show. We'll be talking about that upset and a bunch of other things tonight as well, too, as we're trying to catch up for the last two weeks and also kind of close out the year entirely. But before we do that, I want to say you can always find our content first and foremost over at MMARatings.net and .com. That is our flagship where we start and end all of our shows and all of our written, written work. Then you can check us out across multiple different platforms, Instagram and uh, Twitter at MMARatingsNet in both spaces. Our podcast, you can find on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify as well. And you can always hit us up on at YouTube at MMARatings in that space as well too there's always this show that goes up once a week and also a pro wrestling show that i do that goes up once a week give or take as well i'll be better about getting that done weekly um but let's go ahead and start talking about some of the ufc action from over the past week let's go back to ufc 269 from two saturdays ago where we had two big title fights one individual retained in charles Oliveira, and then we also have a new champion in juliana pena and before swan i give you the opportunity to gloat about this situation that you've called years ago Let's talk about Charles Oliveira picking up a victory over Dustin Poirier, where he finished him in the third round of their lightweight title fight. What really stood out to you there, and um, what are some quick hits on what you saw from both men? Well, what stood out to me was the same thing that always stood out to me before the the fight. Because after Dustin beat um, Connor, you were asking me, like, who who I thought would fight um, Charles Oliveira. And I said, I felt Connor could beat him. I wasn't too sure about Dustin. And the main reason was because um, Dustin isn't a guy who starts really fast. And Dustin, for the most part in his fights, has been, he's been the guy with the advantages. When he fought Connor, he had the wrestling advantage. He was being more of a full MMA striker against Daniel Hooker. He had the better grappling pedigree. He had um, the better boxing. He just had advantages and clear avenues to take against guys who weren't. In Connor's Connor's aspect, he was fighting in a one-dimensional manner. In the aspect of Daniel Hooker, he was a guy who really didn't have 
dynamic athleticism or really a wide range of skills. So he was the guy with the, the advantages. In fighting Charles Oliveira, as I said before the fight, Charles Oliveira is a better MMA striker. He uses elbows, knees, low kicks, high kicks, body kicks, and he boxes, he boxes some. Dustin has an advantage as a boxer, but as far as the overall striking, Charles Oliveira had the advantage. Charles Oliveira is probably the better athlete right now. Um, Dustin Poirier, to me, isn't a top-tier athlete, and even if he is, the fact is he's getting a little bit older. He's been in a couple wars. He's not the athlete he should have been. He, he used to be. And once again, the, the gap in grappling and wrestling was immeasurable. So the striking is close. The athleticism in Charles' favor. The wrestling and grappling is his favor. The only question was, if he got clipped, would he be able to navigate the punishment to get the fight to where he needed it to get? And this new version of Charles Oliveira seems to be a little bit more mentally tougher. And I think with a better offensive setup, he's not as defensively irresponsible as he used to be. So he's a little bit harder to hit the way you want to. So Justin's only chance was just to beat him up and him to break. And once that didn't happen, I didn't really see a way for Justin to win the fight, to be quite honest. And that's why I picked Oliveira. There were just too many things in his favor for him to re- really be considered an underdog to Dustin, outside of people just liking Dustin Poirier. Yeah, a lot of people were definitely uh, rooting for Dustin heading into this fight. So what was – and now, now that we see that Oliveira has successfully defended his, his championship because he was the underdog coming into this contest here, do you think that the conversation around his ability to pull himself back up out of these hard uh, positions, is that, is that completely over? Like, are we no longer going to hear about that leading into his title defenses, or are people still going to continue hyping or, or harping on that based on what we saw from him years ago? Well, I mean, people get stuck on narratives, so I think it's always going to be an issue. I mean, it, like, I, if he fights Justin Gaethje, people know Gaethje punishes guys, he breaks guys down, and he finishes guys. So they're going to instantly favor that. Um, same thing with uh, Chandler. Chandler's a dynamic, explosive kind of striker. You figure um, his one chance of winning the fight is to basically just blow the doors off. You know, he's done that historically. As had, and Justin Gaethje is more of an attritional damage, but he still beats guys down, breaks them down, and, and wins. So people are going to constantly go to that because most of the guys he's fighting right now, that's the only way they win. Justin Gaethje isn't going to out-wrestle Charles Oliveira. He's not going to out-grapple him. Dustin Poirier was not going to out-wrestle him and out-grapple him. The only way they had a chance of winning was to basically overwhelm him on the feet because none of them had enough confidence in the groundwork to get on the ground and really expose themselves being reversed or submitted while trying to ground and pound him. Same thing with Chandler. So the question is, do you have a high enough caliber of finisher to make that a real-life threat? I didn't think Dustin Poirier was a high enough threat. I don't think Justin Gaethje is necessarily one. I didn't think Michael Chandler was necessarily one. I think Conor McGregor could finish. I think he's a better finisher than they, those guys are. But once again, when you see the fact that he has those defensive skills and he has such an advantage over everybody grappling, it's really hard for me to just buy into the fact that he's just going to get knocked out and finished and beat up by somebody, it, especially the guys he, he's got facing him. The guys he's got facing him, they're so deficient in the grappling and wrestling area that it's something that he doesn't even have to, they won't even try to challenge him in those spots. So if you're fighting somebody and there's a whole two ranges, you won't even attempt to engage them with, it's going to be very hard for you to get a finish because the fight just doesn't take place on the feet. It continues in clinches, it continues on the ground. So if there's two places you don't want to even engage him in, 
that cuts down there's that cuts down on your opportunities to finish. That cuts down on the opportunities you have to put them in a position where it can be finished because you're afraid of being finished yourself. So I think that's gonna stay. I think the I think the narrative is gonna stay because in both fights he got rocked against Chandler, he got rocked against and dropped against Dustin Poirier. So a lot of people are just gonna say, well, if one or two shots land differently, the fight's over, and they'd probably be right. So that, I don't think that narrative is ever gonna go away because. The actual problem is people think he quit. It's not that he's not tough. People think that he quit. And people feel that once you quit once, if you get enough pressure put on you, you're going to quit again. So that narrative, I don't think, is ever going to go away. But um, as far as the narrative of him being fragile, I think that'll start going away. But the, the narrative that he'll quit when it gets tough, that, that's never going to go away. People ha- have it in their mind that they've seen it too often. So they're never going to get away from that. And the next time he loses, even if it's a perfectly explainable situation, they're going to say he quit. And that's just that's just the cards he's been dealt based on how he's fought the previous 10 years of his career at the UFC or nine years of previously at the UFC. So, yeah, I think I feel like leading into fights that people will begin talking about the, his past um, quitting, I guess, nature that we'll call it. But I think people will talk about that less. We haven't seen it for a very long time. He's been in some tough situations. We saw the situation with Michael Chandler when he was rocked in the second round of that fight. Even against Poirier, he was taking some shots. Poirier was definitely laying into him with some of those punches that we saw in round one and um, before he got the takedown in round two. So I think it's still going to come up. It's probably going to come up a little bit less than what what we heard leading into this fight because everyone expected a different outcome. But I do think it's still going to come back up um one, one thing i do one thing i will point out is that it's something that our good friends from heavy vans told me um they're like when when charles really kind of folds it's been in kind of grappling situations where he's been taking punishment in both situations where he's been taking abuse it's been in free-flowing stand-up exchanges where you can kind of get away from it whether it's a clinch or reestablish your distance it's different when someone's on the ground and physically punishing you but once again, which one of these guys, Poirier wasn't brave enough to, Chandler wasn't brave enough to, I don't know that Gaethje is brave enough to, is going to actually t- take the risk of getting into a 50-50 exchange or a scramble with him on the ground to assert their dominance and punish him. Because he's such a good grappler, he's so dynamic, who's willing to take that risk? Most guys in the division aren't willing to take that risk. And I don't, I don't know that Justin Gaethje is either. So there's a position you can get him in to quit, but how many guys either have the skill set or just the guts to even attempt to get to those positions. Yeah, that's definitely true there, sir. Uh, we always talk about what's next for the men and women who defend their and, and win titles in these main event fights. So let's talk about what's next for Charles Oliveira before we talk about Dustin Poirier, because I'm seeing a lot of build up, quote unquote, around the idea of Conor McGregor getting a fight when he comes back. Um, Oliveira even said today that he's waiting for McGregor when um, he is set to come back in May. So, uh, Shawan, let's say, what are the odds that you would say Conor McGregor is the guy who Charles Oliveira faces next? Um, I just don't think I don't think it's gonna be Conor. I just can't. I don't. I think there's too many things you have to go through to really make sure he's 100%. And and I think the UFC once is thinking a bit of a long game with him. You know, it's like get him in with an easy win. And then get him in with Charles Oliveira. I just don't. I just don't think they do it. I guess they could, but I, the Conor, Conor McGregor mystique. Part of that is getting wins. Another decisive loss, especially coming off of an injury. I don't know how sharp he could possibly be 
for a title fight against a guy who's been really active and a guy who's a much better wrestler and grappler than him. It just seems, once again, he's got an advantage in two-thirds of the fight, and Connor's coming back from an injury. You can't – I mean, if he did it, it would be a great comeback, but you can't guarantee there won't be some kind of hiccup. You can't guarantee he'll be at his best. And if you want to kind of get the most you can out of Conor McGregor, I don't think you put him right back in against Charles Oliveira. I think you go Justin Gaethje, and then you have Conor fight whoever wins the, who wins that fight. That's what I would do. Yeah, I agree with that. I I, I do not see Conor getting a fight um, in that regard. I, I think that even from his standpoint, I get what he's trying to do. And, I, and from a skill standpoint, a Charles Oliveira fight is a winnable fight for him. But I think it will be better for him to take a warm-up fight, quote-unquote, um, whoever that may be. And it's, diff- it's difficult at lightweight because if you look at the – if you looked at the UFC rankings, it's really hard to find a clear fight that Connor could take if he was to come back. I mean, Michael Chandler, that's a fight he could win there. Um, Dan Hooker, maybe that, that but Dan Hooker's dropping down to 145. Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson. Tony Ferguson's coming off two losses. Connor's yeah. coming off. It's it's a fight that people wanted before. Now they get it. And Connor's probably, I mean, even though Tony hasn't been what he used to be. Tony hasn't just rolled over for anybody, so you're still going to have to do a certain amount of work to to beat him. Um, I, I would I would go with Ferguson, you know. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But then on the other side of that, we got to talk about that's not the fight that we make. Is Justin Gaethje the next guy for um, Charles Oliveira? Is that a fight that you think fans would want to see? And how do you think that that fight will play out if they were booked against each other right now? Well, I, I think that's the fans that the people who are legitimate fans of the sport are. Conor McGregor fans want to see Conor in with Charles Oliveira. I think fans of the actual sport want to see Justin Gaethje in there. Um, to be true, to for one thing, the fight is very similar to the Dustin Poirier fight in that you have a guy who's mostly a striker, who's got some skills as far as a wrestler, or grappler, but whose main thing is dominating people on the feet, breaking people down on the feet. Only difference between this is Justin Gaethje his um, offense is a little bit more diverse. His, his offense is a little bit more diverse than uh, than Poirier's. And as far as he uses the clinch, he uses the kicks a little bit more, but he's not as good a boxer as Poirier. But ultimately, it comes down to the same logic. Will he overwhelm Charles Oliveira? Or will he, or will he uh, wear him down on the feet? Or will Charles Oliveira, you know, hold his own on the feet, do as much... T- can do as much damage as he receives and ultimately get the ground, the fight to the ground and finish. So in a lot of ways, it's the same matchup as Dustin Poirier, but once again, it's a matchup between the champion and another highly ranked guy who's fought his way into that position. So the real fans of the sport and the real fans of the UFC want to see that fight, and that's probably the fight they should get. Should get. I don't know that anybody else in the division has proven enough or been successful enough recently to get that fight. The other fact that I'm looking at is this bout we have against Benil, between Benil Dariush and Islam Makhachev, which is, um, I'm not sure when that fight is happening, but those two guys are definitely paired up to compete coming up soon. How do you think about the either winner of that fight there? Are they, who is the bigger threat for the champion right now? I don't know, because I'm I'm not sure that any of them have, have really beaten anybody to the point where you could say, okay, I have a legitimate reason to believe that this guy ha- has something for the champion. Neither one of them has beaten like top tier opposition. Even though Oliver, some of the guys Oliver has beaten 
have been favorable matchups. The fact is they're still elite guys in the division, and sometimes being elite over, overcomes any technical or strategical limitations in a fighter's game. Um, neither one of those guys, to me, has done enough where I sit there. I mean, stylistically, you could say there's some advantages because both guys, cause guys can grapple. There's some athleticism there. But neither one of them has really faced the kind of adversity that that Oliveira's faced against the kind of caliber of opponent that Oliveira's faced, or they haven't faced it and overcome it. So it's hard for me to say that those guys are really a danger to him when they haven't beaten anybody anywhere near his caliber. I, I can agree with that. I think that that would be a big step up for both men. Let's, um, before we go any further down, talking about Oliveira here, let's talk about Dustin Poirier. Because he's the way he's been talking has made it sound like he's thinking about retirement. It's made it sound like he's thinking about going up to 170. Let's talk about 170 pounds because um, Kobe Covington has been calling him out pretty heavily over the last couple of days. And that will be, I think that will be a big money fight for both men outside of the title picture because both of them are well well outside of the title picture at 170 pounds there. What do you think about that fight? How do you see it going down between those two guys? Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what to think about that because I don't know that it's a favorable matchup for, I mean, it's good in the instance that Kobe Covington is not a big welterweight. So he doesn't necessarily have to worry about getting bullied or manhandled like he would against maybe an Usman or, or something of that nature. But the problem is, once again, Kobe Covington fights at a fairly high pace. And I'm not sure that Dustin Poirier's power, which is a lot of what he's built his career around, carries over to uh, 170. And like I said, Kobe's not a big 170 guy, but he's been able to hold his own against some – fairly big punchers and without that ace in the hole as far as his power I'm not sure that Dustin's quite the threat at welterweight that he was at, at lightweight and I don't know that his physicality even holds up as well as it does at um at, at welterweight the way it did at um lightweight so I don't know how he would slow a pace I don't know how he would really keep Colby Covington off of him I'm not saying he can't beat him it's just I, I'm not sure that he that his style is best suited to fight someone like Colby Covington who's going to stay on you and throw a lot of volume because he always used that to set up takedowns, clinch attempts, to wear people down. And I'm not sure that Dustin Poirier matches up very well against that style. It's a big, I guess it's a big money fight. It's kind of an exciting fight. Colby will help sell it. But I don't know that Dustin wants to give Colby a reward because ultimately it's a reward. You could say, I took this fight, I'm going to give him a beating, but he's still going to get paid to take this beating. And Colby's fairly well paid so he's gonna get paid a lot to get to take this beating and if by some form or fashion Kobe Covington beats him how's Dustin Poirier gonna live that down because you know Kobe's already unloaded on him and he wins it's just gonna get worse and worse personally I think I think Dustin really is looking to retire I think he wants to take fun fights or big money fights big type of event fights I don't know that he has any real interest in working his way back up to a title shot I mean if one comes Great, but I don't know that he has any interest to spend the next two or three years of his life trying to build himself up to a title shot, especially at 170. Um, I, I just think he's closer to the end than uh, most people think, and he, he has no reason not to. He's had a, he was close to title 145. He got an interim title 155. He fought for the title 155. He just wasn't able to close the show. He fought for it twice, wasn't able to close the show, and um, he's made a lot of money. He expanded his brand for him and his his um, charities. I, I don't really know the purpose of him fighting other than him just want, wanting to make big paydays 
which requires him to face a certain caliber of opponent or him just wanting to keep on fighting. And I, I don't really think he wants to fight like that anymore. I don't get the impression that he's all in on fighting. And you know how they are, what they say about fighters who aren't all in on fighting. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in seeing what he does next. I don't really want to see him go to 170 um, just because I would be concerned about what that size difference will look like. We saw a similar situation with Max Holloway coming up to fight Dustin a couple years ago. What about, what about Rafael Desanos? He won a couple fights. And then he just went downhill, just getting crushed every other fight he had at, at, at Welterweight once he started facing the better, bigger guys. Yes, when you run into that upper echelon, that's when you start to have a problem there. And I don't really want to see Dustin Poirier go through that situation. He's really been on such a great upswing over the last couple of years of, of his career. I would like to see him find a way to get paid and ride out on that wave, too, as well. Um Someone who's not going to ride out on a wave is Amanda Nunez, at least not right this moment, because she was defeated by Juliana Pena. I think it was the second round of their fight. And it was very, even though she was landing some bombs in the first round, it was never as one-sided as you would think. If anything, it was more one-sided when Pena got the finish because it was met with very little resistance here. Shawan, why are you so adamant about Pena being the one who could probably implement this game. And what, what were your thoughts when you saw her uh, pull that off? Well, the, the whole thing, the whole thing about, about um, Amanda is a lot of people, the whole argument with Amanda is she's a different fighter because she fights full time. She's a different fighter because she fights full time. The cardio is different. Her skill set different. She's got a different mentality. And it was really hard to challenge that because she kept just, blowing people out. She beat Misha Tate in like a round or two. She beat Ronda Rousey in like a round. She beat Sarah McMahon in like a round. She beat Holly Holm in like a round. You know, um, she had those two, the fights where she's been extended in are the fights that you saw her look less than stellar in. In the first Valentina fight, she gassed out trying to finish. And when she gassed out, Valentina almost beat her with an inch of her life. Val- Valentina almost finished her. Even late in the fight, Valentina was was close to closing the show out, but she was able to hang on. In the second fight, Amanda didn't take any chances offensively. She just fought a very slow pace, maybe exploded four or five times that fight, and that was enough to eat her past her. Against Durandamy, she almost finished her early in the round. Then she gassed, and Durandamy beat her with an inch of her life for the next round and a half, and then Durandamy almost finished her with a triangle late in the fight. So basically what I saw was anytime she gets extended, anytime she can't finish quickly or she's forced to fight at pace, she, she she drops off dramatically. Her offensive work rate, her power, and her defense falls off a cliff. And I knew that Juliana Pena wasn't going to let wasn't going to yet let fear of her power or fear of being finished keep her from from approaching or being aggressive towards Amanda Nunes. Against other people, there's spots where she can rest because they're afraid of her wrestling. They're afraid of her her striking. They're afraid of her grappling. Juliana Pena was going to force her to engage in every single range. If she got hit, she was going to keep throwing back. If she got taken down, she was going to scramble up and look for a submission. If she got the takedown, she was going to look for ground and pound, look for submission. There was going to be no area where Amanda Nunes can rest. And when Amanda Nunes can't rest and she can't cruise, Amanda Nunes gets tired. When Amanda Nunes gets tired, she gets sloppy offensively. She gets easy to hit defensively. And a lot of that warrior spirit and that elite mentality goes away. I mean, 
The only other fight where she really exposed herself would have been the Kat Zingano fight. She gassed out, Kat fought her at every spot. When she got tired, she quit. And this was the same thing. When she got tired, she basically quit. And she quit because Juliana Pena never took a backward step. And even though Juliana Pena, everybody knows how dangerous Nunes is in the first round, Juliana never let that keep her from engaging her, whether it's grappling, whether it's clinches, whether it was exchanging strikes. And after that first round, Amanda was essentially done. Um, and that, that's that's pretty much all it was. I just never bought into Amanda being the mentally tough, well-conditioned fighter that people kept trying to tell me she is. Everybody kept giving me all these examples, and all these examples were in slow-paced fights or fights she finished in the first round. If you can push her past the first round and you can make her work, she doesn't really have much else. And and that's basically what we were showing. What's interesting about that is is you know you've been saying that that when challenged we will see a different Amanda Nunez for a while, and thinking about all of her fights since that Kansas Gano fight, um, she's really just been I don't want to say front running, but when she's fighting she's been so far out ahead of her opponents either finishing them or just really kind of dominating them in a way from start to finish that that it's hard for them to overcome. So to see her put in a situation where someone is pushing back against her from the very start, it it was amazing to kind of see her wilt in that fashion. Um, well, Holly, Holm, Holly Holm tried to do that. Holly Holm came out was trying to get a really high pace. She just kept taking Holly Holm down. And in that transition, she was Holly Holm. But Holly Holm was trying to push the pace. Holly Holm was trying to make her work to get her exhausted. She just got caught before it could before she could get to that point. Um, so it, it you you've seen it work before. It's just people got fooled because they're like she went five rounds with Rocco Pennington. Yeah, but she put such a beating on Rocco Pennington early. Rocco Pennington was just trying to survive. Well, she went five rounds with Felicia Spencer. That's at 45. She hadn't fought a bantamweight in like a year. So she hadn't fought at this weight class in a year. That's it's different when you get to keep on those that extra weight and come in healthier with with a bigger supply of energy. Anytime she's faced anybody who's who's been able to survive her onslaught and make her work, she's always looked mortal. For a round and a half, she looks superhuman, but if she can't get a finish, she looks very mortal. And I hadn't seen anything that tells me she had learned to fight through adversity. When she fought Durandamy, she was just basically hanging on and surviving. When she fought Valentina and she was tired, she was basically hanging on surviving. She She hadn't shown any ability to search for a submission or slow a fight down or figure out any sort of solution when she's not at peak strength and dominating a fight. I haven't seen her come back in a fight that she's losing. You know, I've seen her hang on, I've seen her survive, and I've only seen her against people who are willing to to give her a break. Durandamy couldn't wrestle. That's what got her off the hook. Valentina is super technical. Valentina won't take chances. She won't make a fight messy. She wants it to be technical. She's a safety first fighter. So she's never going to take the chances necessary to put herself in position to win. Juliana, not just all, Juliana covers all the skill sets. She's not great in any of them, but she'll challenge you in all of them. And she's willing to take some to get some. And she's willing to risk being finished to get the chance to finish you. And that's the difference. She just wasn't going to settle for just eking out a win or being close or trying to, trying to protect herself. Her thing was trying to get at Amanda. Above anything and all things, she was just trying to get at Amanda any way possible. And as long as she was getting to Amanda, she didn't care what was coming back. Everybody else hasn't been willing to take those kind of chances. And that's why they ended up losing. 
Do you think Amanda comes back to 135, or does she stick to 145 for the remainder? I don't. I mean, she's probably going to try and come back because it's a selling point to be a champ, champ, and all that. I don't really see the point of her doing it because if if Amanda just would have got dropped with a big shot or just got taken down quickly and submitted, I'd see where her 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 point would be. She'd be like, "Well, I just got finished. I started off cold. I wasn't ready. She was too aggressive." But the fact of the matter is, Amanda got the fight where she wanted to. She had the upper hand. She was landing the shots that normally put people out. The only difference is it didn't put her out. She got to certain positions where she could have finished with ground and pound or submissions. She just was unable to finish them. In the second round, she got the fight she wanted. Heavy exchanges between her and Juliana Pena. She just couldn't finish. So you can make technical changes, I guess. But ultimately, I don't know that mentally she can recover enough to win this fight. She's got the skill and the, and, and the talent. But she got to where she wanted. She landed the shots she wanted. She got to the position she wanted, and she still lost. She was outfought, and when it got tough, she quit. She didn't just get caught. She wasn't tired and and caught off guard. She she was in full control of the fight, and then and then Juliana just fought her way back in, and then she took control of the fight. And from that point on, Amanda had no answers for it. So she didn't even have the op- the option like a GSP. I got caught with a big shot. Somebody, oh, I made one mistake and I got submitted. She didn't. This was a back and forth fight, and she just got out fought, and she decided, I don't want to take any more. I'm done. I don't know how you come back from that, because Juliana knows I took her best shot. Juliana knows I was in position to be finished, and she couldn't get the job done. All I had to do was all I had to do was not give up, and she did. That's a real hard way to that's a really hard way to come back and say I'm gonna win a fight when it basically came down to you giving up and the other person not giving up. And that was the only difference. She had every advantage in the fight, and she still lost. Not because she got caught, not because she was lazy or sloppy or showed back technique. She got beat because the other girl fought back, and when she had, when she fought back, Amanda Nunes quit. That's all this to it. They were both in bad spots. One of them quit, and one of them did. Very good stuff there, sir. Let's talk about um, Pena next, because I am, I'm going to say I'm 85, 80% willing to bet that her first title defense is against against Valentina Shevchenko. Do you agree with me, or do you think that they go in another route before setting up that fight? I honestly think if Amanda wins the rematch, she's going to get it. Um, The fight for Valentina could be made. Valentina has pretty much cleaned out her division, and I know Valentina wants to shot that Bantamweight shot, and she's already beaten Juliana, so there's a storyline there. But I think Amanda's going to come back, and Amanda's going to get the rematch, and then after that, you'll probably get Valentina because there's not really a viable contender for the belt at Bantamweight. Um, I mean, like somebody who you could build an event for and there's a storyline. I mean, Ketlin Vera is good enough, but is it really a storyline there? Eh, I don't know. Um, Irene Aldana is a good fighter, but once again, she hasn't really been dominant. And is there a storyline there? Eh, I don't know. Only other option is Holly Holm. That would be interesting just because of the pace both girls like to fight at and both being very durable and willing to engage. But um, Holly Holm, I mean, I can see them making a fight like that if they want to make it an event and make it something they could sell. But outside of that, outside of home, they don't really have another name they could put in with her. So that would probably leave Valentina. Um, The one thing I will say about Juliana is as dangerous she is because she takes risks, she's a danger to herself because that's how she got finished by Valentina. That's how she got finished by Duranami because she's going to attack you in every single range, which means she's going to be there to be attacked or countered at every single range. 
and that makes her dangerous because there's no rest zone and she could you could you're in danger whether you're standing or they're wrestling or whether you're on the ground actually grappling but it makes her very vulnerable because she's not she's not a great grappler she's not a world-class grappler she's not a world-class striker she's not a world-class wrestler only thing i'd say she's world-class at is her mental toughness and probably her her cardio and the pace she keeps at maybe even her durability but as far as skills she's probably one of the most vulnerable champions the ufc's ever had She's the kind of person who could get beat on any day by who gets submitted by Duran to me and then turn around and submit Amanda Nunes. That's that's how broad the spectrum is with her. Um, she's never really truly been dominant, even when she was on a win streak. It was really competitive and back and forth fights, even against lower class fighters. Her style of fight and her lack of high end athleticism ultimately makes almost every fight against a world-class opponent a 50-50 fight. That's why people didn't pick her against Nunes, because they've seen her struggle as much as they've seen her, even in, in her best wins, they've seen her struggle. And in her worst losses, they happen in such an embarrassing fashion. It's like, I can't imagine this person going in with the pound-for-pound best woman in the world and beating her. So I, I think she might even have a long reign, but it, I don't think it'll be very impressive. I think it'll be, in a sense, kind of like a Tyron Woodley wearing where she keeps on winning, but it's never really with the authority you would like from a dominant champion. Yeah, I think that looking at the rankings right now, if Shevchenko doesn't get the title shot, which I think is the route they're going to go, that um, either Aldana or Aspen Ladd can slide in there for a title shot as well. I don't think Nunez would get the immediate title shot. Um, and I think that Holly Holm, they're kind of like meh on giving her yet another title opportunity. She's basically becoming the Frankie Edgar of the women's division across the board. So I could see either um, Aldania or, or Ladd sliding in for a title shot there. Do you think you know, would? Didn't, didn't Ladd just lose at 40? I don't know about Ladd. Maybe Aldania. Maybe, uh... um, Ladd missed weight, right? Didn't she miss weight? And then... I, can see, I can see Aldania or Vera, Caitlin Vera. One of those two, maybe. Yeah, because um, Aldania's ranked number three. Caitlin just beat um, Misha Tate. Misha Tate, yeah. So Aspen Ladd did lose. She lost that featherweight um, to Norma Dumont. That was she. She missed weight, and then they gave her this fight last minute at featherweight. Then she lost that one. That's the one I think. Wasn't that the one where she was getting yelled at? Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So she may be out, but she is still ranked number three at 135. But yeah, you're right. Um, Aldania or Vieira may get that title shot there. Um, let's look back to UFC 269 as a whole. And is there anything else that really stood out for you on this card? Um, really the biggest thing, which to me was just how far Cody uh, Cody Garbrandt's fallen. Um, he moved down weight classes. I'm thinking he thought his power and his physicality would be enough to, to crush... Um, lightweights who weren't as big or as durable as the guys he was fighting. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is a lot of his identity as a fighter is built around his hand speed and his explosiveness. It covers a lot of the defensive lapses he has it and it allows him to be offensively successful off the counter. And in some cases leading at a lower weight class, if you have exceptional speed, it doesn't usually translate as well. Frankie Edgar dropped the weight class to walk to featherweight. He started getting touched up more than he did at lightweight he dropped down a bantamweight. He started getting knocked out. Um, even Jose Aldo at featherweight, Jose Aldo was hair quick trigger. People couldn't lay a hand on him. And I know he's a faded Aldo, but the fact of the matter is that bantamweight people's speed actually bothers them. 
Those guys are faster than him. Same thing happened to TJ Dillashaw when he dropped the weight class. And Garbron went to a weight class where every mistake he made could be exploited by a guy who was prepared for and more comfortable with his speed and had, had probably a little bit of a quickness advantage of him. So that was a really bad loss. And um, I don't know what he does from here right now because um, he went down to hoping to get some momentum. And I guess he's got, maybe he'll stay there again. But at this point, what, what happens next? I mean, he's lost. He had a bunch of KO losses. He's young still. But the chances of him turning around and becoming a champion um, aren't looking too good because he didn't quit. He didn't just get beat up and broken down. He's got the he's had his light switched off like two, three, four, five times, and that's not a good look for anybody. This this young in his career with these kind of holes that he has right now. So either he needs to start from scratch and restructure his whole style, and become more safety first, or uh, he really need to start might need to start thinking about another uh, line of work. Because as he is, he's not going to be able to compete consistently at ban- at bantamweight or at flyweight. Good stuff there, sir. I, I think that seeing the wheel, seeing his wheels fall off over time has created a, a situation where you have to kind of take a step back and figure out what you're doing in the fight game. I think he's what one in four in his last five. And that's just not going to cut it, especially when you start looking at the amount of damage he's taking. He's being stopped every time. This this isn't a situation where he's losing via decision or anything like that. So he really needs to kind of look back and assess at um, how he is performing to really figure out what's next for him on this card. What do you think well, about no, no, Nobody ever wants to take a step back. Anthony Pettis, if he would have taken a step back years ago, he wouldn't have gone on a four or five losing. He on trying to get ranked guys hoping that he could beat one and jump right back to the top. And when you have dramatic flaws, and those flaws are highlighted also by you losing a step physically, you can't just jump back. You've got to actually take the appropriate steps to make corrections so that your next move is actually one that moves you forward and doesn't move you back. Cody got knocked out by TJ Dillashaw, jumped right back in there, got knocked out again, fought Pedro, Pedro Munoz. I think he got finished in that fight as well. You know, it's just he keeps on jumping in with high-ranked guys because of his ability, and sometimes it works, but more times than not, it's been, it hasn't. And now his reputation and his long-term health have probably taken some pretty big hits. Yeah, that's 100% right, especially his health. Um, So let's move on, because I want to talk about the rest of UFC Fight Night 199 before we get into boxing news. And Derek Lewis Picked up a big win. He stopped. Um, what was the guy's name? Dawkins. Chris Dawkins. Chris Dawkins. Yeah, stopped him in the first round via knockout in under four minutes. Here, Derek Lewis, man, he doesn't go away. Um, and he keeps picking up wins that keep him in the title conversation. Now he's being talked about as an alternate if something happens between Nganu versus um Surugan next year. So what are your thoughts about this here, Sean? Is this a big enough win to keep him in that slot, or have we seen the best that Derek Lewis kind of has to offer? Well, the problem thing with Derek Lewis is, I've said this before, he's a low-skill fighter, and people can try and explain to me all they want. He's a low-skill fighter. His, his skills aren't dynamic. He's not a dynamic, really technical striker. He's not really any sort of technical wrestler. He's not really any sort of technical grappler. He's a big, strong guy with amazing athleticism, amazing power, amazing durability, amazing physical strength. But he's not super explosive consistently. He's not really fast consistently. And his his skills are really one note as far as 
the range of them and the depth of them. What he is is a very smart fighter who has an identity. He knows he's a big power puncher. He knows he 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 lives on the counter, and he knows that he doesn't have a lot of the layered, subtle aspects of fighting down. So he does a lot of things to put himself in positions that allow him to exploit guys in heavyweight division because ultimately a lot of them are just so technically deficient or so one-dimensional that he can exploit them and he can punish them. When he faces a better all-round technician or he faces someone who's got enough of a physical skill set to offset his offset what he does, that's when you start seeing the chinks in his armor. The thing is, heavyweight is so heavyweight is so thin that he's always going to be a factor because one, he's got that tremendous knockout power, and two, most guys lack the skill or the physical tools to match him consistently from round one to round five or round one to round three. At some point, he's going to land a bomb, and most guys aren't good enough to avoid it to take that away, or most guys aren't good enough to take it. That, that tells me what it is. When he fought Gagne, you saw all the limitations in his game, the footwork, the lack of setups, the lack of combination punching, the lack of, the lack of positioning, the lack of defensive awareness. Gagne just refused to give him the fight that he wants, and as a result, um, Derek Lewis couldn't generate any sort of offense because Gagne wasn't fall, falling for all the tricks that he that he does, all the little things he does to create openings. You know, like if there's a little jump kick, He'll fake takedowns to get you to back up. But when you're facing a guy Gagne's caliber, he'll circle out, he'll angle away. So now you've got to reset and hunt him back down all again. Most heavyweights don't have that skill set, so he can exploit them. His power scares them, and then he can exploit them because they're so fearful of him landing a bomb. They actually put themselves in positions to where he can finish them. So he's he'll always be in the heavyweight talks as long as his chin holds up, as long as his power is there. But as far as being a legitimate heavyweight contender that really depends on who wins from Ngannou and Gagne because Gagne can repeat that fight against Derek Lewis over and over and over again the drama comes knowing that if Lewis ever lands super clean it's a wrap for anybody but the fact of the matter is as far as the skill set and what he can do and how much he's improved offensively as a grappler or a wrestler or even a striker he's not really in those talks it's his physical attributes that allow him to maintain it because he's tough enough to hang around in a fight long enough until he, he can either create an opportunity or an opponent makes a mistake and gives him an opportunity to finish. Good stuff there, sir. Um, I don't know where I stand about Derek Lewis. Sometimes his shtick gets on my nerves and I just am not, and I'm, and I'm not a big fan of watching him fight, but I think he, he is someone that can sit around that three to five position in the rankings for a very long time just because heavyweight is what it is and he has that power that continues to disrupt the uh division but and, and he's got experience he's he's fought everybody in the division so you bring a young guy up there the young guy might have better skills that young guy might have better athleticism but does that young guy know he's in a bad spot does that young guy know what to do when a guy won't go away or will he fall for Derek lewis pretending he's hurt and then landing a bomb or will he fall for Derek Lewis's wild swings that are just a setup to get you to the cage so that he can really unload on you? He he's he's it's like he's the most elite non-elite guy in the history of mixed martial arts. You know, there's more reasons why he shouldn't even be in the UFC than there are reasons that he should be. It's it's really an amazing it's a really amazing thing to see a guy who's so limited in every single skill set continue to be so successful in what's essentially the highest level of mixed martial arts. 
Yeah, it's definitely, he is a conundrum, but sitting around at heavyweight, being at heavyweight does really help him um, remain in that position. What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, you could pull this at welterweight. Say it again. I said heavyweight. Yeah, I know. I'm saying if he was, if there was a lightweight with the same skill set he had or welterweight, they would get, they'd get roasted. A featherweight couldn't get by with the, the skill set he has. It only works at heavyweight. Very true there. Very true. Um, what are some other things that stood out from you for uh, UFC Fight Night 199? For me, it was below Muhammad's win. He picked up a very strong performance against um, Stephen Thompson, which is probably the most important win of his career to date. Now he's calling out Hazmat Chimeoff, which I think would be an interesting fight there if they were to book that. But in my opinion, this is the biggest win of his career, and it definitely was a statement win, even though he didn't get a finish, but he was able to negate everything that Stephen Thompson is good at in such a way that we haven't really seen in a very long time. So that really stood out to me. But what are some things that stood out for you too as well, Sean? I, I saw that happen for his years ago when he fought Matt Brown. Matt Brown basically did the same thing, but at some point Stephen Thompson started learning to wrestle and defend and counter. And I don't know if he's just a step slow or something's wrong with him, but he didn't look like he didn't I mean the decline from him from even a year ago is just amazing. I've just never seen him look so out of sorts. And so he just said he didn't have the physicality and at the timing. He couldn't really land anything. He couldn't get away. He couldn't manage. It was just the worst Stephen Thompson I've ever seen in life. Even his stand-up just wasn't there. He couldn't get anything done at all, like nothing. So that was uh, that was bad. I think it might be time for him to uh, call, it, uh, call it a career because we saw the same thing. Even though him and Mashida – do different kinds of karate. The one thing both guys have in common is they're not really super durable, and a lot of their work is based off them being having a timing advantage, a quickness advantage, and being able to avoid damage while applying maximum damage. If he can no longer avoid damage or avoid clinches or keep himself off the ground, um, he he's not even a, he's not a top ten fighter anymore. He's not. There's just too many wrestlers in division. If, if this is what's going to be the norm with him. He's going to be hittable. He's going to be easy to take down. He's not going to move his feet and create or extend distance. He, he's not going to even be able to be a top 10 fighter. I don't know that he can be a top 13 fighter. Um, outside of that, the uh, Raquel Pennington fight over Macy Chason. I don't think Chason is a great fighter, but uh, she is a, a young one who's, who's done fairly well. And Raquel won since her loss against Nunes, but this is the first fight where you really felt like she, she showed some of the energy the physicality and the uh, ability to adjust that you had seen in previous versions of Raquel Pennington. It seemed like a recent fight she's been getting by on grit and just being a little bit tougher and, and outworking people. But in this fight, you know, she she made necessary adjustments and showed a full range of skills in getting that win over Jason, who, while I once again, I don't think is a great technical fighter, is young, is big, is physical, fairly young, big and physical, and uh, seemed to be the kind of fighter that could expose Raquel Pennington if she wasn't 100% on. And this is probably the best version of her I've seen in a while. Maybe not the most dynamic version of her, not that she's a dynamic fighter, but probably the best version as far as the all-around skill set. And then uh, Aaron Blanchfield beating uh, Miranda Maverick. Um, I think that was this card. Was it this card? It should be. No, Miranda Maverick lost on 269. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Before that. Um, who's the other fighter on this card? Oh, Sajara Eubanks. I don't know what the UC does to her. She misses weight like routinely. She can't be a viable bantamweight. I don't know. 
I don't know what she who she, what she has on whoever makes the decisions there, but for her to miss weight as many times and have so many uneven performances, she never seems to be in any danger of being cut by the UFC. And I'm just I'm very amazed by how this has gone with her. That that loss Saturday night was a really bad one, and I'm not sure where she goes from here. Because if she can't make weight, she's shown she can't be a viable bantamweight. So I don't know what else you do with her. Yeah, I don't know what else you really do with Shajar at this point in time. I think that we do end up seeing her getting cut. Um, what I also was interested in were your thoughts on the Amanda Hill fight there, where she loses yet another close split decision. What are your thoughts about how that fight played out? And um, did you agree with the decision, yes or no? I had to agree with it. I felt like Lemos did slow down. Hill was able to land some shots and, and walk and walk her down to a certain degree. But ultimately, even in lowering her volume and getting to her spots and and kind of baby and being able to outwork her in spots, Lemos landed the bigger shots. Lemos did the most damage, and Lemos was probably the fresher fighter towards the end of the fight. I'm not saying that Amanda was, um, excuse me, Angela Hill was out hustled or outclassed but ultimately the most being a bigger stronger more dynamic athlete is what won her the fight she just had too many big moments and to me angela hill ne- never had enough continued success to say that she was clearly winning rounds or clearly winning the fight um like i i like angela hill like i said she should be a superstar good looking charisma always in good fights but the fact of the matter is she always seems to come up a little bit short Sometimes it's more questionable than others. The fight against uh, Claudia Gedalia was a little questionable. The fight against the Karate Hottie to me was not. And this was yet another fight that wasn't um, particularly questionable. Even that people were saying, well, she got the knockdown, but that wasn't really a clean knockdown. So you take that out of the factor, and it, it's it's pretty much a, a pretty pretty clean win by Lemos. It shows her limitations when she when she can't just blow you out. She runs out of ideas, and her defense isn't really great, and she. Can't fight at any real sort of pace but as long as she has those physical advantages and she can scare people off she's gonna win and like i said hill hill made it a fight hill made it a war she exposed some weaknesses she won a round or so but i never felt like she took full control of the fight and for me to really say that you could win a close decision i had to feel at some point you had control of the fight i don't know that i ever felt that a man at angela hill had control of the fight and you brought up um, Claudia Gadelia, which is an important there, name there to, to mention today because she actually retired this week. Um, she's stepping away from the fight game, doing her own thing outside of MMA. So what was her legacy to you? I was always of the mindset that she was going to be the 115-pound champion at some point, especially after the first fight with with Joanna, but it never came to fruition. So what are your thoughts about Gadelia's um, legacy now that she's retired from the game? Yeah, basically, she's Daniel Cormier without a title. She's who Daniel Cormier would have been if if John Jones never got suspended, if you want to be honest about it. Because um, she was always pretty much the second best. She was always the second best. When when Joanna was there, she was second best. When Andrade was there, second best. When she was Rose Namajunas, she was second or third best. She never really beat the elite, elite fighters in the division. She just kind of beat everybody else but she never really beat the best in the division when it was most important. So she had all the talent in the world, was a high-profile signing, was a high-profile fighter in the division, but she was never able to to close the show. First, she was losing to Joanna, 
Then she lost to Andrade on the way to a title fight against Rose Namajunas. And then later on in this last iteration, she won some and lost some. She could just never really turn the corner. Um, great talent. Obviously uh, had somewhat of a name and helped build the division, but she was never able to really take over or achieve the goals people had set for her. People were thinking, like you said, were thinking that she was going to be a future world champion. And she was, she was never, if you really think about it, she was never really close to that. As close as she was with title chances and, and ranking, she was never really close to being a true um, or really even a legitimate title title challenger after the, the, the fight with uh, the rematch where she fought Joanna. Yeah, you could see in that fight there, too, that it was really like the writing was on the wall. If she would have won that first fight with her, I think she would have been in a much different um, situation. She probably would have fought Carla Esparza. But mm-hmm. then you think about her issues with gas and everything, there's no guarantee she would have beat Esparza in that first That's fight. That's also true. Because she she was always good to land shots and land big shots, and, and she either overwhelms you or she just puts something on you and you can't come back from it. But Esparza's made a career out of taking abuse, then turning fights around. And I, I can't guarantee that she would have beat Esparza back then because the version, the later version of her probably beats that version of Esparza. But the, that version of Claudia Gadelia was a fighter who got tired after a round or two. Even if she was dominating it, she she was getting tired. And if you get tired against Carla Esparza, unless you're some kind of dynamic wrestler type, I don't know that you beat her. And... Claudia Gadelia, one thing you can guarantee in Claudia Gadelia's fights is she's going to get ridiculously tired. That's definitely true there, sir. That's definitely true. Um, let's move over to boxing. Let's talk about Tyron Woodley and Jake Paul from this past weekend, where we saw Jake Paul finish off Woodley in the fifth round via knockout. Now, this fight was bad leading up to that big knockout. How important was that to Jake Paul's status as a quote-unquote money fighter? Well, the uh, the thing that makes it big is it, it's and Tyron Willie was considered the best fighter, maybe not the best striker. Well, the best striker out of the guys he's fought and the best fighter, most accomplished fighter. For him to stop someone like Woodley, add some cachet to his name, because if nothing else, Woodley's been generally pretty durable. I don't remember Woodley ever getting knocked out by anybody. He faced Usman. He faced Kobe Covington's volume. He faced... Uh, Wonder Boy's volume and creative striking. He's faced Robbie Lawler, and he's never, I mean, except for in strike force, but even then that was over like a five-round war where he was just taking tremendous amounts of punishment. Jake Paul essentially finished him with the first really hard power punch he landed. And so now Jake's reputation is a, to the fans, his reputation as a power puncher has been kind of reignited. And more importantly, his his reputation as a boxer has actually taken a step forward because he didn't just land a, a, a big shot in a sloppy exchange. He set it up. In the first fight, he jabbed to the body a lot, went to the body, and, and Tyron really never had a defense or a counter for it. So in the second fight, that was already set up. That was already prime. He dipped, looked down. Tyron dropped his hands, and he came over the top and iced him. Um, the fight wasn't very good. But the fight wasn't going to be very good because – Neither one of them is a dynamic enough offensive boxer to just create the exchanges or create the position, create the opportunities they want. And secondly, both of them are fearful of the power. Tyron Woodley got rocked a couple times that first fight. No matter what he said about Jake didn't do anything to me, Jake hurt him in the first fight. And Jake got hurt by Tyron in the first fight. 
So they were a little bit gun shy. Neither one was willing to really take a lot of chances to get to get the work done. So people are going to forget how bad a fight it was because of the knockout ending and how and how bad a knockout it was. And um, Jay Paul, his 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 reputation as a power puncher takes it take, takes a big boost because he knocked out a guy who, to my knowledge, hadn't been knocked out in what ten years, and he'd been facing the best strikers, the biggest hitters in mixed martial arts and he also takes a step forward as a boxer because he actually set that shot up it was actually it wasn't world-class obviously he's not a world-class boxer but it did show that he's getting more comfortable it did show a, a, a impressive awareness and it did show that he has some layers to his game outside of just um blowing guys doors off you know the, tyrone wasn't giving him very much to work with tyrone was smothering him tying him up and so basically when he created the distance he he figured out what Tyron was doing to slow the fight down and muddy it up. So he created an opening and then he just exploited it to the fullest extent of it. And um, you know, now we have a knockout of the year, probably in mixed martial arts or boxing. Oh wow, he said knockout of the year in both mixed martial arts and boxing. If I said that, that was truly a one I mean, like he hadn't really hit him with a power punch the entire and the first one he hits him, hands drop, face down, laying Laying on the ground, not moving for like seven seconds. I mean, we've seen some double knees this year. We see wasn't the Joaquin Buckley knockout this year too as well? Yeah. I mean, I even though but it's like those are, you know, kicks to the head, knees, also that's sustainable. And those are those are from guys who, who are comparable opposition with comparable resumes. I know Tyron Woodley is not a boxer per se, but the fact of the matter is he it's in some form of combat sports, he was a world-class fighter. Jake Paul hasn't even been a regional fighter as far as the opportunity space or the skills he's shown. For And I know he's bigger than Tyron. I get all that. But to knock him out the way he knocked him out and be in his, rep, his resume and his accomplishments, it's, it's hard for me to think of another knockout that overshadows that. The only world-class fighter in that ring was Tyron Woodley. And he got not just outsmarted or outslicked, he got his doors blown off. And I say that as respectfully as possible. That's what happened. I'm not saying Tyrone couldn't have done it either, but he didn't. Jake Paul did. And that's that's very impressive. No matter what you think about him and people say, oh, Tyrone's not a real boxer. Most regular people can't box MMA fighters and most MMA fighters are terrible boxers. Most MMA, most regular people couldn't train for a year and do decently against MMA fighters in a ring at, at, at any level. So I, I, I look at the bigger picture of what Tyrone Woodley's accomplished and who he is as an athlete and who he is as a fighter and the fact that Jake doesn't have any of that. He's just some kid with some athleticism, some size, who decided to to take on a challenge, and he's far exceeded what anybody thought he would do. I know he's far exceeded what I thought he would do. Good stuff there, sir. Um, let's see. What else in the boxing world would you like to cover today, sir? Uh, well, you had Geronta Davis's pay-per-view. Um, we don't have the exact numbers, but from all intents and purposes, it seems to have not done well, his fight against Isaac Cruz. So now we see the downside of how Floyd Mayweather and Leonard Ellerby have moved Geronta Davis. Geronta Davis hasn't really fought the best opposition. Mario Barras was a title holder at 140, not one of the best fighters there. He fought uh, Leo Santa Cruz, but Leo Santa Cruz was a guy moving up two weight classes to challenge um, Geronta Davis and then fighting Isaac Cruz. Isaac Cruz 
was a tough, gritty fighter, but he wasn't a fighter who had accomplished anything that said he was world-class. It's finally starting to catch up to Tank. He either needs a name on the other side of him or he needs a world-class opponent on the other side of him for him to continue to make money and to have these events um, make the money they need to make to, to justify them being repeated over and over again. And at this point, he's taken... He, he's, he's gone as far as he can, fighting undersized guys or fighting guys who aren't accomplished at a certain level. He's going to have to start fighting guys who are closer to his level as far as talent, closer as far as level as far as pedigree, or guys who the public accepts as legitimate challenges. What he's done in his previous fights is he's made guys seem like they're challenges. I beat Gamboa. Well, Gamboa has been an elite fighter in seven, eight years. I beat Mario Barrios. I moved up a, a weight class. Mario Barrios should be fighting at 147. So he's way drained, and his guy's not a big puncher. Well, AZ Cruz, he's a tough guy, and I fought him. Yeah, he's tough. We all knew that. But he didn't look world-class until he fought you. And Leo Santa Cruz, I beat him. He's multiple-time champion. Yeah, multiple-time champion from 118 to 126. You were fighting him at 135. Like, the events are still big. He puts on good performances, exciting fights, but people want to see those same exciting fights and those same kind of performances against world-class opposition. Devin Haney is fighting world-class opposition. Uh, Cambosos is fighting world-class position. Lomachenko is fighting world-class position uh, opposition. Everybody's fighting world-class opposition who's known and has a resume and pedigree except for Tank Davis. And now it's catching up to him, and they can no longer just make big events. They're going to have to give people names they can recognize what resumes they recognize, what accomplishments they recognize and respect. And until they do, uh, this whole, his ability his ability to get a ranking as a pound-for-pound fighter isn't going to be there, and his ability to sell, sell pay-per-views at a decent clip is not going to be there. And um, this, this is the first time I've kind of seen people actually push back against Floyd, what he's done with Duranta, and now he's going to be painted in the corner. He's going to have to fight somebody real next time, somebody real and someone known. And previously to that, they were saying they didn't have to fight anybody because they were the A-side, they were the money makers. And if this pay-per-view flops, that's no longer something they can hide behind. They're going to actually have to go earn the respect and earn the money they want from here on out. Good stuff there. So I'm actually looking forward to a lot of boxing next year um, just because I think that it really, especially Canelo, but it really kind of stood out and had some big moments this year that were really worth watching. Um, we're going to go ahead and kind of close out the show, but before we do, like, what are some of your highlights from the last 365 days of combat sports? Uh, one of my highlights is uh, Canelo, speaking of which, because a lot of guys wait around for the big money fight. They try to stay busy. They're trying to stay, stay with their zero. They try to collect belts to get to the guy who's – got the money. Canelo Alvarez throughout this past year has made it a point. Yeah, he's done the same thing. He's kind of picked fights. The fact of the matter is he's fought the best guys in every division on his way to getting these fights. Some of the guys he's beaten are now title contenders again, and some of the guys he beat were some of the guys who had, were longtime champions who were considered threats to beat him, and he made them look ordinary. He made Billy Joe Saunders look ordinary. He made Caleb Plant look ordinary, and people keep saying that Canelo's afraid to face certain fighters, but Canelo is always challenging himself, moving up in weight classes, fighting guys who are considered world-class or undefeated, fighting guys who've had their titles for extended periods of time. It's rare that you see the guy who actually makes the most money 
going out looking for the toughest challenges. Even as he moves up to um, he moves up to uh, cruiserweight. The fact of the matter is, in moving up to cruiserweight, even if that guy's not a big puncher, even if that guy's not really world class, the fact of the matter, that guy is gonna is a guy with a title, a legitimate title at the weight. He's got a size, strength, and most likely durability advantage. We don't know that Canelo has power at that weight class. So even though that guy may not be the creme, creme de la creme in boxing, the fact of the matter is all the advantages he has physically um, essentially make that fight 50-50. But the most thing, the thing I like the most about Canelo is the fact he's been challenging himself. And unlike other guys who are waiting for fights or calling for fights, he's going out and picking out the most challenging fights against the best opposition available. Everybody else is like, why don't you fight this guy? That guy doesn't have a title. Why don't you fight that guy? That guy doesn't have the title. He's going after the champions. And after he beats them, people start questioning the validity of his championship reign or his the validity of his resume when the fact of the matter is he's fought the most world champions out of any current fighter, and he's the most active fighter in boxing. He single-handedly put boxing on his back. Um, another uh, in my top three is, would be Jake Paul, not just for what he's done for other fighters by putting on these huge events. He got Tyron Woodley, the two biggest paydays of his life, He's got other fighters, the biggest paydays of the life. He took money out of his pocket to help other fighters get bigger paydays and get and put, be put on the platform where they could expand their brand and expand people's knowledge of them. Most importantly is he helped Amanda Serrano, who's one of the best pound-for-pound pound fighters in the world, best pound-for-pound pound women fighters in the world. He's getting her paid, and he's getting her known, and he's setting her up for a big money fight that's going to be probably the biggest event in women's boxing in the history of women's boxing, as far as two women in their prime with world-class resumes and world-class skills, that's happening because of Jay Paul. Floyd Mayweather can say, oh, I like the women. Canelo can say, I like the women. Javante Davis, all of them can say, I support them, let them do their thing. But none of them is speaking with their their money. Their money's not talking for them. They're not putting them as co-main events. They're not making sure they're getting paid. For all the crap Jay Paul gets called on as far as being a fake fighter and a fake boxer and a promoter he's making sure his fighters all the people fighting on his cards are getting career close to career high paydays and they're getting maximum exposure not every fighter does that they're concerned about themselves first and then they help everybody else jake paul has already made more positive strides for women boxers than has been done in the past 10 to 15 years by any other name boxer in the world including Floyd, including Oscar De La Hoya, including Sal Canelo. And as far as um, the last thing, as far as MMA, what would I say? The biggest thing, the most impressive thing in the last year, I hate, I'm not the biggest Dana White fan, but I have to give that man his respect because he somehow found a way to make his sport, even though he didn't do it probably in the, the safest manner, he made his sport viable when every other sport didn't have any sort of option or answer as to how to continue to move on. The UFC for the most part, moved on without a hitch. He gave us fights we wanted. He gave us big events. He gave us big spectacles. He gave us great fights. And as much as we don't like him or how he treats the media or how he treats his fighters or how he pays his fighters, the fact of the matter is when everybody else ground to a halt and didn't have any work for people and didn't have any answers, uh, the UFC kind of set the bar as far as making events happen and giving us the, the best fights available at those times. Good stuff there, sir, man. That's a really good breakdown. And I agree with you, especially about the Canelo aspect of watching him run roughshod over boxing and Dana White's sheer um, tenacity about keeping the UFC running 
at a time when the rest of the sports world has shut down over the last two years or so. That was definitely some willpower to watch it go down. Um, for me, I think that my biggest thing about combat sports this year is just kind of watching my, I'm not going to say disconnect from it, but just watching how the sport itself has gone further and further from away from my what I stand for socially. Um, it's been tough to watch um, because you're a fan of the sport. You're a fan of sports in general. Like I was just looking at something with um, Aaron Rodgers that just made me kind of shake my head. And you see it across all the sports where we're the big, the loudest voices, maybe not necessarily the majority, but there are a lot of loud voices that are pushing sports into the wrong direction when it comes to the social conversation that I look to lift up. And it's becoming tougher and tougher to really get involved with them. I mean, like how many different um, MMA uh, UFC shows that we see this year where someone won and then made a statement about a conspiracy theory or some type of other alt-right narrative during a post-fight press conference um, conversation or their post-fight speech with in the cage. We've seen it way too many times, not even accounting all, all the stuff we've seen on social media. So that's really been what stood out the most for me this year. And it's just been something that's more and more difficult to overlook. You know, speaking of that, and I, I, I've heard more than enough people on Twitter or just social media who they'll pay attention to the biggest of fights and the biggest events but they're just not as invested in it. They've said similar things. They're just like, it's too much of a, a show, any shows, and the reality of the sport, whether it's paydays or people's stances on, on controversial issues, it just gets old. And I think there's been a certain, I think if the UFC didn't have this ESPN deal, you would notice, you see a direct, it would impact their ratings more. It would impact their bottom line a little bit more because this this deal allows them to, they get paid regardless, high ratings or not. And so you don't notice the loss or the step back as much. But if this deal wasn't in place, I think the UFC and uh, people who cover it would notice the drop off. Because I, I think people just aren't as passionate. You don't see, even with big cards, you don't see the traffic you used to see. I haven't really seen any huge traffic until you saw that upset with Nunez and Pena. That was just all over the place. Everybody was talking about that. But that's that was like a one, that was, Holly Holm beating Ronda, Ronda Rousey level of upset. Um, I think you do. I think you're being very genuine. And I, I think a lot of people feel like you. It's just the business of it and just the, the character of who you're rooting for or who you're supporting just by watching the event makes you less likely to want to support it and makes you less likely to want to root for them. And those are the two things you have to have to have a, have a successful fight promotion. And one last thing, when you... When somebody's a, a Green Bay Packer, you can hate Aaron Rodgers, but he's helping your team. When you hate a fighter, that fighter isn't representing a team. People aren't fans of the teams. They're fans of the fighter. So once you find out something about the fighter that you find distasteful, you stop supporting him. And there's no reason to support him because it's not like he plays for your team. He's going to help the Lakers win or the Packers or the Cowboys win. The only person who wins when he wins is him. And the only person who gets hurt when you pull your support is him. So it's a lot easier to disconnect from combat sports than any other sport because there's no team and there's no there's no uh, geographical connection. So I, I think if they don't learn to measure things out or make things a little bit more palatable, I, I think they could they, they could take a huge step back as far as their popularity, their legitimate popularity, not just their ESPN generated popularity. Good stuff there, sir. So um, how are you going to spend your two weeks off? 
Uh, same thing as always, man. Just be exercising, helping kids, and uh, being around my kids. I think they all came home for the most part. You know, they're not here a lot. They just kind of eat food, disappear, and go, and then come back and eat the rest of the food. So that's probably – I'll just probably be keeping it chill and doing the same thing I'm always doing, training kids. And um, uh, I think I'm going to do an NBA podcast. The guy who writes for – right, covers the NBA, I'm going to do a podcast for that um, a couple episodes this week, I think. But other than that, just business as usual, man. Good stuff there, sir. Um, I will be trying to trying to relax a little bit. Gonna be a little difficult, but let's see what I can do. Traveling a little bit, hopefully, knock on wood. Um, we'll see what goes up. I'm supposed to be going to Mexico for New Year, so like, let's see what happens. I'm not too sure about that, but other than that, man, just kind of laying low before the new year. Got some things in mind. I'm just trying to get started. So, but. With that in mind, Shawan, we're gonna go ahead and close out. As always, sir, thank you for joining the show. Um, you know, this is Riley. She wants to join in as usual. But uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us for another year. We'll be back on the 5th of January for episode 226 of the MMA Rings podcast. Everyone stay safe. Have a happy new year. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. All that good stuff. And yeah, thanks, everybody. Stay safe, everybody.